You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. I think, you know, there's a multi-pronged approach that you have to take to uh, address this problem seriously. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Brandon Hoffman returns. He's from Intel 471, and he's got some research on business email compromise. All right, Joe, uh, let's dive into our stories here. I'm going to kick things off. And, uh, you know, our listeners may not know this about you because they only get to listen on the show. But, uh, Joe, you are a a wearer of elite sneakers. You come in here every week with a different pair of fancy, expensive, high-quality sneakers. I've never seen anyone who has a collection of sneakers quite like yours. Yes, Dave, that's that's correct. I have... I have so many sneakers, I don't know what to do with them. Yes. Um, I I only wear a pair of sneakers once. I'm like, you know, Jerry Lewis used to only wear a pair of socks once. Is that right? Yes. He, he was a peasant compared to me. I only wear my <laughs> sneakers once. I see. Well, well, this story is right up your alley. This is from the New York Times. It's written by Daisuke Wakabaishi, uh, and it's called The Fight for Sneakers. And uh, the story here starts off with a, there's a shop in uh, Boston called mm-hmm. Bodega. And it's a streetwear shop uh, in the Back Bay neighborhood of Boston. And they're well known for having uh, the latest sneakers in their shop. So when when a new sneaker comes out, they're the first to have it. Uh, They're actually the second, Dave. I'm the first. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I I stand corrected. That's right. So back in 2019, uh, New Balance came out with a special edition of their 997S sneaker, which is a very high-quality shoe. Mm -hmm. Um, And the entire stock sold out online in about 10 minutes. Huh. But the problem is about 60% of the sales went to bots. Really? Yeah. So the bots had claimed hundreds of pairs of these New Balance sneakers for a single customer. And so many, many people weren't able to get their sneakers at all. Huh. And, of course, what these bots do is they buy up the the hot sneakers as quickly as possible. And then they go and they resell them. Because people are willing to pay more. The New Balance is charging for them. Correct, correct, and and if, of course, as you know, Joe, being a sneaker aficionado, right? Uh, these sneakers go for high dollars on the resale market. They do, and they're very collectible. Um, and uh, this article has a little bit of the history of it. That this really kicked off back in the eighties with the original Nike Air Jordans, right? Which I remember when those came out, um, thinking to myself, who in the world would pay that much money for a pair of sneakers? Right. And turns out, lots of people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I, I, I mean, we, you and I were around when this ramped up, when sneakers became a thing, became a fashion statement. Yes, they, yeah. I remember, I remember this clearly. And in case the listeners haven't picked up on this, I own exactly one pair of serviceable sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> And they, <laughs> they are New Balance, you know, and I, I'm wearing them now, actually. But it's yeah. time for me to get new ones because these are about a year old. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> but I paid for these. I think I paid 120 bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
that is more than I ever thought I would pay for a pair of just regular sneakers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, because uh, my feet are shaped like duck feet, I have very wide feet. Right. Uh, and New Balance was the only brand that came in widths. So I, I, you know, when everyone was getting Nikes, I got a pair of Nikes and proceeded to bust through the sides of them in about two weeks. Really? Yeah. And my mom said, well, we're never doing that again. Huh. So uh, I had a teacher, actually, who was a runner, and he said, you know, you should check out these New Balance shoes. And, I, and at that point, no one had ever heard of New Balance. Uh, so I had to go to this special sh- runner's shoe store and buy these New Balance shoes. And I remember they were like $75, which was an unbelievable amount of money back then. Right. But uh, they were great, and they fit me perfectly, and they lasted a long time. And so, you know, I've been a fan of their shoes ever since. Uh, but I digress. Right. Um, this uh, so these shoes became collectibles, starting with the the Jordans. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, the Reebok Pump was another hot shoe back yep. in the day. Um, I had a pair of Reebok basketball shoes. I remember also that uh, the style at the time was to wear them loose, to not not tighten your laces, to just have your your the tops of the shoes open. Yes, that's the style when I was in yes. high school. That's the way I used to wear my high tops. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, uh, a, a big market for these shoes, and they sell out quickly. Uh, a shoe that will uh, retail for $200 can sell for $800 on the resale market. That's amazing to me. Yeah, it is. Um, but so the, the question is, should these retailers be trying to shut down the bots? This article points out there's nothing illegal about bots. Right. Nothing illegal about using automation to try to purchase large quantities of things. But if you're a retailer, uh, you kind of have mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, a bot sort of makes your life easier because if you have sell all of your shoes instantly to one location, basically you put stick them on a pallet and ship them off and cash your check. Right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, you have a lot of disappointed customers. Yes. And so for the long term, it's not – good for you to to not be able to have the product available. Here's another angle for this, Dave. Yeah. Uh, are these retailers and manufacturers actually losing money that these, uh, that these essentially shoe scalpers are making? Could these guys be charging a higher price for the shoe to begin with? Uh, that's a good question. And should they do that as, as a matter of course? I mean, these are, these are luxury items. Yeah. You know, th- these are not, you can get a good commodity shoe for a reasonable price. Yep. Right, you yeah. don't need to spend a two hundred dollars shoe. Nobody needs to go out and buy a two hundred dollars shoe. Right, uh, my shoes are serviceable shoes built for running and walking. Yeah, and they didn't cost me two hundred bucks. But yeah. if I'm going to build a luxury shoe or manufacture a luxury shoe, and I, I'm going to sell it as a business owner, I think I'm missing out on profit. Somebody else is eating my lunch here. Yeah. I wonder because, as you say, it's kind of like scalping concert tickets. Mm-hmm. And there came a point where the the uh, the ticket masters of the world got smart on this and said, well, if the people are willing to pay this much for concert tickets, why not we charge that much for concert tickets? Right. And I think we've seen – I mean, look, you know, the prices of shoes have gone only in one direction, the price of these elite sneakers. Yes. But one of the interesting things this article points out is that – uh, the value of the shoes on the retail market seems to be directly correlated with how quickly they sell out. Hmm. So a shoe that sells out in 10 minutes is worth more than a shoe that takes 45 minutes. So to sell even out. even if let me see if I have an opportunity here, Dave. Mm. You and I could uh, write a bot that buys shoes. 
yeah. buys up all the shoes in 10 minutes. Right. That creates a demand. So maybe if the, uh, to my point earlier, if the manufacturer charged or the retailer charged the, the high price, they wouldn't sell at all mm. because nobody believes they're in demand. Perhaps the bots are creating this perceived demand. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And this article uh, points out that uh, one of these retailers was able to slow down people's orders. They did things, you know, obviously we're all familiar with CAPTCHAs. Right. Right. But they had, they've had to put more sophisticated CAPTCHAs in place. They have CAPTCHAs that ask you trivia questions. They have CAPTCHAs that not just asking you to, uh, you know, click on all the the pictures that show a picture of a bridge, you know, but they actually have you draw a box around the image with the largest airplane, you know, that sort of thing. Mm. So more sophisticated captures. But what they found was in the process of slowing down people's purchases, the shoes sold out in 45 minutes instead of 10 minutes right? and was considered a failure on the retail market. So the value of the shoes on the resale market, the secondary market, was much lower because it took 45, 45 whole minutes, Joe. To sell out the shoes. <laughs> right, right. Rather than 10 minutes, uh, it was considered a failure. So what isn't that in, What a world, it's, right? I, I feel like I'm living in crazy town. <laughs> this is, I don't understand the difference between a shoe selling out in 45 minutes well, and 10 Joe, minutes. Well, Joe, you and I are old. So yeah, maybe that's obviously what it is. That's why we wear New Balance it's shoes. Not, exactly. It's not designed for us. It's for the people who are into this. Um, but there's a good point. The... the, the the last sentence of this article uh, is one of the resellers. He says, at some point you have to ask, how much time are we supposed to spend to stop people from buying our products? Right. Right? Yeah. Which is, I, I guess it's fair. You know, there are other things that bots come in and, and you know, we see, you know, we're heading into the uh, Christmas retail yeah. Uh, season. The hot toy is going to be out there somewhere. And, yeah, and the bots scoop up all that stuff. The, right. The PlayStations, the, you know, the hot Lego thing, whatever it is, they swoop in and and uh, and and get them. And I don't know. I, I guess it's a balance. Would, are you okay with bots? I'm kind of torn here, Dave. Yeah. You know, as I, I, I understand, I understand, you know, the retailers trying to say, what, do you want me to not sell things? I mean, yeah, right. your, your mission <laughs> is to sell things. But right. at the same point in time, I'd be very frustrated if I had to wind up paying. Well, actually, first off, I view it this way. If it's something that's going to be replenished, the factories are not going to shut down, mm-hmm. right? Like PlayStation 5s, whatever they're up to now. Yeah. Sony is not going to stop manufacturing those. Right. They're always going to be available. Uh, there may be a demand and a high demand, uh, but that demand is going to wane as the people who cannot stand being without a PlayStation 5 are satiated, if you will. Yeah. Um, and I can wait for that. Right. So, and I've always been able to wait for that. It's not something that's <laughs> new in my personality. I'm right. not, I'm not paying a premium for something that will be readily available soon. I'm also not the kind of guy that goes in for these shoes, these exclusive shoes. I'm, I'm I very much take a commodity view of these products. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, I lack empathy here because of, because of my thinking on it, mm. but I, I, I don't know what to do, but the, yeah, but I, Mm, I'm frustrated here, Dave. I don't know. I don't know the answer to your question. I have to because I absolutely well, understand it. People are people yeah. are upset. Well, and but I think part of it is that the manufacturers of these shoes are creating artificial scarcity by making them limited editions from the get go. Right. Yeah. So if there are only going to be five thousand pairs of whatever shoe it is, and they know there's going to be high demand, 
then part of what you're counting on is the desire in the secondary market to get people to buy them quickly. They, you, people want to be the person who's out there at the, you know, the hottest place to be seen wearing the latest sneakers that everybody wants and nobody can get. Right. So that's fashion, you know, and, uh, yeah, not a world I know anything about either. Not, not so. a world I actually get. <laughs> I, I... Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, interesting article. We'll have a link to that in the show notes if you're uh, interested in the uh, the world of retail bots and the, the types of things that uh, resellers are trying to do to thwart them. Again, that's from the New York Times. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, I have two stories. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about a story from Fox News that has uh, it talks about a report from the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. Mm. They have released their annual re- report protecting older consumers. It's a 55-page report. And guess what the biggest scam that older consumers have fallen victim to is? I'm going to guess that it is like the Microsoft tech support scam. Ah, you would be incorrect. Ah, okay. It is romance scams. Oh, yeah. Romance scams. Yeah. Last year, in, or in 2019, rather, American seniors lost around $84 million to romance scams. Hmm. In 2020, they lost $139 million wow. to romance scams. These are just the scams that reported to the FTC. Yeah. The hardest hit people were between 60 and 69 and the 70 to 79 groups, which reported uh, $129 million of losses. Hmm. So they, they share the lion's share of the, of the losses, yeah. uh, the seniors do in this case. There is a big COVID-19 part of this scam. People are using, uh, using that as an excuse not to meet with people. But oh, to still carry on a relationship, I see. So it 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 provides a way for the scammers to say, yeah, I don't want to really get together. You know, I know we're both older. I I, I would hate to get get or give you COVID nineteen. That would right. be awful. Mm, hmm. That makes sense. Right. Uh, there are some other scams out there, like prize sweepstakes and lottery scams. Uh, but the vast majority, or not the vast majority, but the lion's share, the biggest piece at about ten percent of the losses was this romance scam. Hmm. The other story I have actually comes from the BBC, hmm. right? And this is a little bit of a better story, Dave. <laughs> okay. Uh, eight men who have uh, who come from Nigeria have been arrested in South Africa hmm. and accused of being part of a dating scam. Mm. And they've appeared in South African court and they've worked with the FBI and the Secret Service. Oh. And they have been accused of defrauding more than 100 victims of almost $7 million. Wow. So these guys are actually responsible for a significant amount of, of, uh, of romance scams. Mm-hmm. And now they've been arrested in, uh, in South Africa. Now they are, uh, the FBI and the U.S. Secret Service are working with, with the police in South Africa and probably the Nigerians as well. Uh, but the men are wanted in Texas and New Jersey for a variety of offenses, including uh, conspiracy to commit wire fraud and money laundering. Mm. Oh, and aggravated identity theft, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not really getting a lot of uh, sympathy for bail because everybody thinks they're an immediate flight risk, right? <laughs> <laughs> like they're going to leave South Africa and head back probably to Nigeria where they're well-connected and will just disappear into the crowd. Right. Nigeria is a very populous country. Uh, these, these people concocted sob stories is what the uh, law enforcement is calling it. Uh, they preyed on their victims through dating sites using these fake identities. Once they had ingratiated themselves to their their victims, they allegedly concoct, concocted sob stories that they needed money to pay taxes or to release an inheritance, 
mm-hmm. which is interesting, I think, mm-hmm. that uh, that they're using the same uh, the same scam that that other Nigerian scammers use. Uh, you know, here's your money from the Nigerian prince, right, right? Right. But this guy is saying, "Hey, I got money from a, a Nigerian prince, and I, I need to. It, my my father was a Nigerian prince, and I need to get the money out." Yeah, sticking with the classics, right? Exactly, because it worked. <laughs> They also needed money for overseas travel, uh, crippling debt, and then they just siphoned the money away from their victims. Hmm. But these guys, these eight men, are now uh, hopefully going to be brought to justice, possibly extradited to the U.S., where they could face up to 20 years in prison. Wow. You know, we see this with uh, a lot of the ransomware folks who typically come or, – or the you know the, the bulk of them originate from Russia, mm-hmm. and they get lazy, and they decide they want to take a vacation – somewhere yep. and they go to a country that has an extradition agreement with the United States yep. <laughs> or, or one of the other, you know, European or NATO countries and they get nabbed. Right. This is uh that that's what happened to Roman Selesnev, who was a carter mm. uh who just infected hundreds of machines all over uh, uh the US and the world. He was very successful at his art, had mm-hmm. lots of money. Mm-hmm. Uh and the U.S. authorities kind of knew who he was, but they – Russia doesn't extradite their citizens, period. Right. They just won't do it. So we had to wait for this guy to leave Russia to go on vacation. I can't remember which country he went to, but mm-hmm. when he went there, uh, the U.S. authorities worked with that country and arrested him. And now he is our guest at, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at uh, Club Fed. Yeah, I guess uh, – I don't know. Maybe Russia doesn't – have very nice beaches or something, or or it's probably just the grass is always greener. You know, you, yeah. you got all this money sitting there; it's burning a hole in your pocket. You're going to go to the, you're going to go the fanciest place, and you know, whatever. Take take your uh, significant other and go have a good time. Yep. And then you get nabbed. Yes. <laughs> and you couldn't afford. You have all those millions of American dollars, and you can't afford to buy yourself a fake passport. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, you know, back to your original story here about the romance scams. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good reminder that uh, those of us who have elderly folks in our lives, our loved ones, our parents, whatever, our relatives, uncles, aunts, all that stuff, just check in with them and remind them that uh, to be wary of this, right. that if someone is trying to romance them, that that should be a red flag. It should be. And yeah. if you've never met this person— in, in real life and they start asking you for money, that should be another red flag. Mm-hmm. Uh, also remember that uh, there, while it is the case that older people are less likely to fall for a scam, when they do fall for a scam, it's far more impactful. They lose a lot more money than younger people do. Right, right. All right. Well, those are our stories this week. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to cover, you can send it to us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a Reddit user named Steve P. He had someone impersonate a friend on Facebook and try to set him up for one of those benefit scams. The the entire exchange at the end does get a little bit blue. We're going to stop before that because we're a family show, right, Dave? (laughs) That's right. Yes, we are. Uh, But if you want to look at the whole thing, we'll put a link in the show notes. So, Dave, why don't you play the part of the scammer? I will play Steve, and it goes like this. How you doing? Very good, thanks. Very well, considering everything. Good to hear from you. I'm doing wonderfully great as well. I've been trying to get you here because I saw your name on the DHHS list. Have you heard from them yet? What is the DHHS list? What? 
Sorry. It's Department of Health and Human uh, that workers, hearing, deaf, old, young, students, widowed, retired, and people with disabilities to benefit from them financially to maintain the standard of living? Did you receive any money yet? Oh, that. Yes, I got a thousand pounds per month. It's great. OMG, I got a $50,000 check from them, but I saw your name entitled to the bonus when mine was delivered to my doorstep. You have to contract the agent for more inquiry. Do you know how to get it? My agent is great. He put me in for the 100,000-pound home upgrade grant that pays for a new house with wheelchair ramps. I can't wait. This is for real. I hate scam and hoax, but this is real. I got the money for real. I'm planning to buy a new house soon. They came to my home to deliver the cash to me in person, and my bank told me the cash is real. I think you have heard about this. Many of my friends have also benefited from it. Yes, it's fantastic, isn't it? I'm glad you're working for it, too. This is the new online claiming agent. There are always 24-7. Text him. Let him know you want to get your money. Message him now. No need. My agent is bringing a wheelbarrow full of cash to my house later. Then we're taking it to the bank so they can prove it's real and I'm buying a new car. This is the agent text number. Let him know you want to claim your grant money. Text the agent now, Mr. Williams, Jeans Grant, with your full I'm sure they'll get back to you ASAP. No way. Is he better than my agent, Mr. M. Honeybags? He's the best. I'm sticking with him. Just try. This is real. How are you? Yes, I know it's real. I wouldn't be sitting here with the heating on full, looking forward to my new car and house if it wasn't real. Have you got the heat pump grant? I have that. I've got two heat pumps and now triple pane glass. It's like the Bahamas in here. Okay. Don't go. Are you using Bitcoin to buy SpaceX shares? I am. I started with 250 pounds and now my Nigerian account has over 370,000 pounds in it. I've only been doing it for four months, too. Wow, I am not using Bitcoin. I'm telling you, man, SpaceX is a money pot. Get on it before regulators close it down. And Bitcoin is untaxable because it's not physical currency. Okay. Hi. Let me show you my BitCount statement. Show me. Here's today's balance. And he shows him some fake picture that probably says three. I can't read it because it's so small, but it probably says 370,000 pounds. I started with 250 pounds. Okay, wow. Now the guy tries to send a, a, a chat to Steve, a video chat, and Steve uh, just misses it. All you do is buy a Bitcoin from a rep and then it goes up. A whole Bitcoin is too expensive because of COVID and chemtrails. <laughs> but soon I will be able to buy a whole one. I'm a rep now too. Do you want me to get you some Bitcoin? Yes, now. Okay, do you have PayPal? No. Okay, and this is where it gets a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna leave it here, but this is pretty good. Yeah. He tries tr he tries to turn it around on the guy trying to get him to send him some Bitcoin, which probably doesn't pan out, but <laughs> right. it's still pretty good. Right, right. All right. Well, that is a fun one. Thanks to uh, Steve P over from Reddit uh, for posting that, so we could make use of it. Again, uh, we would love to hear from you. You can send us your catch of the day submissions to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Brandon Hoffman. Uh, great to have him back on the show. He is from Intel 471. And he and his colleagues there have been doing some research on business email compromise. Here's my conversation with Brandon Hoffman. 
Yeah, essentially business email compromise is essentially a scam. Uh, they call it business email compromise generally because the scams are most likely perpetrated through the use of uh, either a typo squatted domain, meaning a an email that comes from a domain that looks exactly like yours, but maybe has one character off and it's hard to catch. Or in some cases, uh, somebody's actually compromised the email server and they're sending you an email directly from a trusted user. It also includes social engineering components. And of course, there's some money laundering activity that happens on the back end of this uh, fraud chain uh, or this uh, scam chain, as it were. So that's kind of, you know, when you think about business email compromise, what do you think about in its most basic version, you know, somebody compromises an email system, uh, they send an email to somebody who has the authority to make a wire or send money to pay a quote unquote bill or some other invoice or receivable. And obviously that account is the scammer's accounts. And so, you know, in its most basic form, that's kind of what it looks like. And to be clear here, I mean, this is a widespread thing here. We're talking about, you know, real losses uh, all around the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to think about because it's technically, it's the least technically dependent kind of form of, of cybercrime. And yet it comprises almost half of the cybercrime losses you know, kind of year over year. So it's interesting to think about, you know, specifically about the title of this podcast, right? Hacking humans. This really is directly aligned with the notion of people, you know, being the weakest link to the to a degree. Yeah. Now, in this recent blog post uh, that you all published, you, you were highlighting how some BEC scammers are, are using some of these underground forums. Can you take us through some of the things that you all discovered? Yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, I'll provide a little bit of background. You know, when we talk about tracking adversaries in underground forums, a lot of the things that we track are technically related. So what tools are they using? How are they using them? What are they targeting? And with business email compromise, uh, as I noted earlier, it's really not all that technically dependent. So what they end up using this for is some of the low-level technical things they need, for example, access to an email domain, or most frequently, actually, it's as a recruiting service for people who are native English speakers or people who can launder the money. Uh, So really, when you look at a classic attack chain, there's tooling, you know, kind of sprinkled throughout But in this case, it's really kind of at the beginning and really the end of the fraud chain, which is the laundering of the money. And the reason it's so important for them to have somebody who can speak English and write English properly is because these business email compromises are aimed at executives or uh, people with authority inside organizations, mostly aimed at North America, Western Europe. And, you know, something that's misspelled or the wrong parlance or the wrong phrasing can be an immediate tip off uh, to somebody. So imagine yourself, if you got an email from somebody at your company and things were all spelled improperly or uh, the grammar wasn't right, you'd say, well, something's off because I get email from that person all the time. Right. Right. And so those are the things that they're looking for on the underground forms as opposed to buying a piece of malware or buying a DDoS service or, you know, one of any of the myriad other things that can be bought. 
Yeah. I, I mean, it really speaks to the fact that these scams are human to human scams. I mean, they're, you know, they're taking it, as, as you mentioned, the, the technical skills are minimal. They're really taking advantage of the social engineering side of things. 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So what are your recommendations here? I mean, for, for folks to, to best, to set themselves up for success, to protect themselves against this sort of thing, what, what can they put in place? You know, on the technical defensive side, there are some other things. I think we noted it in the blog around, um, you know, DMARC, which is a domain message authentication, which is, you know, checking for typo squatted emails that come in. There's also simply just the human awareness element. You know, if you're in a position of authority and you think that you might be falling victim to one of these scams, you know, certainly just being aware of the request that's being sent to you is critical. You know, if somebody's asking you to approve a wire or move money around or make a change to an agreement or something like that, that seems not normal, you know, just be very aware, double check things, you know, approval, double checks are always important for these types of things, you know, to a degree that that does get tricky because if they have access to the system, they can read historical email and craft a message that's similar. Mm -hmm. So you just, you just have to be diligent in that regard and I'm not a financial expert, right? But, you know, wire transfers always carry some risk. They can be intercepted, redirected. And once it's done, it's done, uh, as right. the banks will warn you. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, any process that people can put in place from the fraud team to help choose a different method of disbursement or, you know, things like that. Again, I'm not an expert in that space, but those types of things are what you need to be on the lookout for. Yeah. It seems to me like, you know, basic things, even like, you know, requiring a second person to sign off on things that are, you know, above a certain amount can help slow down that process, get a second set of eyes on it. Yeah. And if you don't have the ability to do kind of this message filtering or demarking, as it's called, when you get one of these requests, it's always worth just taking a look at the sender's address and make sure, you know, like for in our case at Intel 471, if somebody sent it to me, and uh, the I in Intel was actually a one or even a different character in a different, uh, you know, or numeral or something else. It's hard yeah. to see, but because we glance at things as humans, right? We just kind of glaze over it. Uh, but the devil's in the details in this one. <laughs> right, right. What about protecting the email accounts themselves? I mean, is, is this a thing where, you know, multi-factor authentication is critical? Yeah, anything that you can do to protect those accounts is important. So whether it's multi-factor, whether it's monitoring for compromised credentials and rotating accounts and passwords rapidly, all those things are important. In some cases, and this is more of a rare case, somebody will compromise a whole service, like a whole group of, for example, Office 365 email accounts. In that case, there's not much you can do about it. You're dependent on the service provider, but also fair to keep in mind that most of the times those will be auctioned off at a higher rate than BEC scammers are willing to pay. So it's less of an issue, uh, more, uh, as you note, relevant to keep your own security posture uh, updated and be vigilant in the monitoring of, of those things. Yeah, it's interesting to me how it seems like BEC compromise is sort of simultaneously kind of low-hanging fruit in terms of the technical skills to do it, but also the losses are huge. I mean, it's a, it's a large percentage of the losses that occur every year. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's really that it's the shotgun approach. And again, uh, I don't know how much I can speak to the exact amounts on an individualized basis, but when you look at it at the aggregate, that's when it becomes kind of staggering. You know, you think to yourself, okay, well, you know, we as a company, you know, we wired 50 grand to the wrong place, you know, okay, that's our mistake. Maybe it's not a big deal. I mean, 50 grand is still a lot of money to any company, right? But, yeah, yeah. you know, it's not, it's not a staggering loss. But then, you know, you do that a thousand times, you know. Right. We got lots that adds of money up. <laughs> Soon we're talking about real money, right? Yeah, right. exactly. So I, I think it's, it's uh, similar to kind of, you know, malware spam, mal spam campaigns and, and, and things like that, the access brokers. It's really about volume, volumetrics more than anything else. What do you say in response to people who who make the case that this really shouldn't be the user's problem, that there should be technical measures in place at, at, at any organization so that users don't have to worry about these sorts of things? Is, is that realistic? I think it's realistic if you have a holistic viewpoint on the problem, meaning if you're willing to be vigilant about compromised credentials, if you're willing to implement technical controls around typo-squatted domains, if you're vigilant in the fraud side on your financial team of not using risky protocols like a wire transfer or having multiple steps for an approval process for any amount, you know, because as I said, even 10 grand, five grand here and there, these things add up uh, for the scammers and it just fuels it. So I think, you know, there's a multi-pronged approach that you have to take to to, uh, address this problem seriously. Joe, what do you think? Business email compromise accounts for about half of cyber losses now. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that means it, it's probably more damaging than ransomware, right? Mm. It's, it's actually something that everybody should be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. If you can mitigate the business email compromise risk, then you can cut your risk in half almost. Yeah. Right? For cyber losses. Not technically sophisticated. Uh, that is a key function of, of this. It's not. It's something that anybody can do once they have access, or even if they're, even if they're using an impersonating uh, email domain. It targets the people and the process, which is also human generated as well. Yeah. Uh, the skills they are looking for when they're on the dark web, these guys are looking for essentially proofreaders and mm-hmm. writing skills. Mm-hmm. You know, these are not technical skills. These aren't. These are not technical hacks. As far as protecting yourself with technical solutions, uh, Brandon is right about DMARC being a great solution. But that is as long as your accounts haven't been compromised already. Mm-hmm. But it can also help stop those account compromises because a lot of times uh, those begin with a phishing email that is designed to harvest credentials, and that phishing email is not going to come from Microsoft, right? It's going to come from some third-party hacker website. Uh, that is not going to have an accurate DMARC record. Yeah. But once the compromising of an internal account is done, you are now solely dependent upon the non-technical defenses. Hmm. And this includes things like your internal processes, right? And uh, your security awareness of your employees. Yeah. Are they going to look for red flags? Is this person who's uh, calling me to ask me to transfer money, is he asking me to do something outside of the process, like keep this secret, don't tell anybody, only transfer the money. Is there an artificial timeline? Right, right. right. Yeah. Uh, that is a big red flag for these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, another technical solution that's good is multi-factor authentication. 
and monitoring of, of stolen credentials, that's also good. Yeah, you know, I got a couple, just this week, I got a couple of, uh, of indicators on my, on MFAs for different accounts. That, really? Yeah, that somebody, you know, here's your reset code for whatever. Really? <laughs> I was like, I didn't request a reset code uh-huh. for whatever. Yeah, so, you know, MFA works. Somebody's trying to take over your accounts. Yeah, exactly. Mm. They didn't get them, did they? Not that I know of, okay. no. <laughs> I would have immediately tried to log in. Paranoid Joe would have changed his password, which is just saying Joe would have changed his password. Right. Change password. <laughs> right. Paranoid Joe is redundant. Right. <laughs> $50,000 may not be a, a big loss to a lot of companies, uh, particularly larger companies, but it is a huge win for these bad guys. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can do this 20 times a year, you're making a million bucks. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and that's a lot of money regardless of where you live. And in some countries, it's an ex- obscenely large amount of money. Yeah, it goes a long way. Right. Additionally, from time to time, we hear about these business email compromise attacks that are very sophisticated and wind up netting tens of millions of dollars. Right. I mean, it is a huge risk for uh, for businesses all around the world. But the more money you have, the bigger your risk, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think we've heard that the folks who are doing this are being much more deliberate in who they're targeting. They're going after the the big the big wins, the big scores. Right. Yeah, because it's worth their time. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, again, uh, our thanks to Brandon Hoffman. He is from Intel 471. We appreciate him taking the time for us. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.